in this second and concluding podcast on the Jansenisms, uh, part two, that is, of Paris when it sizzles, the Port Royalist movement of the middle years of the 17th century. Uh, the whole uh, movement uh, and uh, persecution of the Jansenists comes to a boil, uh, really, um, in the year um, 1664. And uh, what uh, I had told you about was that this movement, uh, based upon a rediscovery of the later works of St. Augustine, that had been uh, uh, initially pioneered by a uh, the Bishop of Ypres uh, up there, where there was gassing, you know, in Flanders fields. Uh, but uh, the Bishop of Ypres, Cornelius Jansen, had died leaving behind a book called the Augustinus, which was a compendium of the later St. Augustine on the question of grace, also with the question of free will and predestination and these eternally um, uh, no-exit questions in the history of human affairs, let alone Christian theology in the church. And uh, his student, Saint-Cyran, had brought these, uh, these teachings of St. Augustine from Belgium down to France, and it had taken root, uh, especially in a man named Antoine Arnaud, who uh, had many, 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 many children and was called Le Grand Arnaud, and he became the sort of leading spokesman and synthesizer of the Jansenist teaching on grace, which was a renewal movement within French Roman Catholicism, which oddly uh, had a, a very great and uh, consecrated, I always uh, feel here like one of the hammer horror English um, uh, caricatures of an Egyptian high priest in the mummy movies, because these, uh, these, uh, uh, they had an extraordinary consecration and devotion to the mass. Uh, forgive the uh, comparison there, but I always think of that uh, wonderful George uh, Pastelli uh, character in The Mummy of 1960, and I think he returns in another one with that kind of. He sounds like a Church of England vicar, but it turns out he's something quite alien. And uh, what happened was that uh, uh, this movement spread. Uh, it was tied. In with a tremendous dedication of the sacrament, but politically it got all caught up, as I said before, uh, with an anti-Jesuit agenda, the Jesuits themselves being extremely clever and utterly systematic and brooking no dissent and having the ear of the king. So there was no way the Jansenists were going to win. There were five famous propositions, as they were called, which were uh, lifted by a Jesuit out of uh, Jansen's book, The Augustinus, and uh, they were condemned by Pope Innocent the Tenth, and by you name it, the whole church came in and condemned these. The Jansenists said they were simply a, uh, they weren't Jansenist, they were Augustinian, and actually they were biblical and Pauline. And I could read the uh, five um, uh, famous um, uh, uh, propositions that were taken. I'll read a couple of them, uh, because then they get very technical, even five. Uh, there are divine precepts, number one, which good men, though willing, are absolutely unable to obey. No person, number two, can resist the influence of grace. Three, in order to render human actions meritorious or otherwise, it is not requisite that they be exempt from necessity, but only free from constraint. And then there are two further ones. The third is difficult. And there are two further ones about semi-Pelagianism. But the point is, really, at their heart, they were just a, a, a kind of a core, fundamental, uh, anchored uh, a, a belief that you cannot save yourself. 
you cannot ultimately uh, create the conditions and uh, create the opportunities and create the will and the desire and then the actual effect to to save yourself in any true understanding of that word, religious or otherwise. And this was absolutely contrary to the teachings of the Jesuits by which uh, a person was given all sorts of tools, confessional, holy communion, the confessor, a number of other uh, tools, even the examination of conscience, words that we now associate with Roman Catholic uh, pastoral teaching on guilt and its economic um, processing in human affairs before God, uh, the Jansenists said that you cannot save yourself. You absolutely cannot. You are in a howling mess of, uh, of, uh, of, of people waiting for death, and uh, you, you, you have to get in there. You have to find uh, uh, something that will actually help you. Pascal himself, who came in right at this time and uh, was kind of a new convert, um, because of his own illnesses and his own uh, um, uh, having been helped by Saint-Cyran's uh, manuals of, uh, on guilt and the sacrament, uh, Pascal himself wrote that this is the nature of life as follows. Picture a number of men in chains and all condemned to death. Each day some are strangled in the sight of the rest. Those who remain see their own condition in that of these their fellows looking at one another with sorrow and without hope, each awaiting his turn. This is the picture of the condition of the human race. Whoa! Well, uh, the Jansenist pessimism, coupled with its tremendous focus on the act and uh, what theologians call soteriology, or the saving by Christ and the love that Christ events towards humanity, sunk in this kind of situation of sort of waiting for your garroting, uh, uh, this uh, was very powerful for what I believe were people in real pain. But it was absolutely verboten to all sorts of other spirits who regarded it as simply absolutely awful. And so um, the political things and other things came in, and had it not been for a couple of uh, strange events uh, by which the, uh, the Jansenists were given a little bit of extra breathing room, spielraum, a little bit of extra gracious space through some historic accidents, or even miracles as they saw them, they would have been quashed earlier than they were. But a couple of things happened. Uh, first in uh, 1656, I think it was maybe early 1657, uh, there was something called the Miracle of the Holy Thorn, Le Miracle de la Sainte Épine, uh, by which uh, I believe it was uh, Pascal's um, niece, his sister Gilbert's, no, it's not right, another sister. Anyway, uh, it was definitely Pascal's 12-year-old niece who was uh, currently uh, kind of uh, um, prof um, seeking, you know, a novitiate uh, at uh, at the Port Royal uh, and uh, Deschamps in Paris, and uh, she had a terrible uh, tumor slash neoplasm slash uh, lacerating sore that could not be healed in her leg, and it was potentially terminal. It, it, it could become infected, and she was in a very severe uh, illness. And uh, during a time of prayer and intercession, uh, she was healed. And she was healed completely and with absolute confirmation by um, regular doctors uh, and, and who saw it, that she had been healed. And in fact, the great artist who himself was a Jansenist, Philippe de Champagne, who was a sort of portrait artist, uh, official portrait artist of people like um, Mazarin and uh, uh, the great figures of the court of Louis XIV, uh, who himself was a Jansenist. And his pictures of the uh, crucifixion, there's one in the, in the Kansas City Museum that is 
absolutely wonderful. His uh, paintings of a very dark and good Friday Jesus are truly uh, masterpieces, and I re recommend them. You can look them up very easily. But Champagne painted the aftermath. It was uh, of the miracle of the Holy Thorn, and I think it's called the Memorial, and it gives the date, and uh, <clears throat> it's an absolutely spectacular painting, one of the showpiece <clears throat> pictures of the Louvre Museum à Paris, and this very large canvas shows the, uh, the Mère Angelique and the little girl, the young girl of about 16 at this point, 12, 16, I, you, you, we can look that up, uh, and they're looking with a kind of a seraphic beatitude that is real, they are in the midst of religious experience where they have been painted in the immediate aftermath of a very powerful experience of blessedness and calm. And it shows, uh, it's not kitsch, it's not, uh, you know, the Magdalene, da -da. you know, it's not something, it's not uh, what we often associate with Cecil B. DeMille type effects, uh, although that's unfair to DeMille. But having said it, there's nothing, there's something here historical. The, the little uh, inscription on it, it was written in the immediate aftermath. It's like a, a photograph taken right after a wedding of the couple and, you, and something of the happiness uh, and the um, particular love of this uh, couple rubs off. The painting has a real luster and you can look it up. And that uh, that miracle caused a tremendous amount of of uh, of uh, of, of interest and positive publicity, uh, of course, uh, with the provincial letters of uh, of uh, Pascal, which were so funny and are so funny and are, in my opinion, truly brilliant. Read them in French. They get a little about the sixth letter. They get a little bogged down in theology. He he begins to really talk about probable cause and. Uh, reserved intention, and he goes into all sorts of theological categories of the Molinist or Spanish Jesuit casuists. And although it's brilliant if you have the time, and in English it's easier than in French if you're an English speaker. But nevertheless, read the first four or five provincial letters in French because they're they're they that you can read them like cutting through butter, and they're magnificent. You will smile and you'll you'll rise up to thank this podcast that you uh, did that if you haven't already. Later on, they get just like the ninety-five theses. Martin Luther about Thesis 29, they begin to get awfully heavy and uh, almost unfollowable, uh, although uh, you can follow them probably in English. But things got really tough, and then there was a formulary that came in in 1661, in which the Archbishop of Paris um, insisted that all of the Jansenist sisters and les messieurs, the lay brothers, and all connected officially the priests sign this formulary recanting the uh, and declaring that the five... Uh, um, statements that had been lifted from the Jansenist uh, book, Augustinus, were heretical. And a lot of them wouldn't do it, and that's the most amazing thing. There was a visitation by the Archbishop Berifix. It's uh, Many paintings have been done of this event in French history. Uh, in August 1664, it happened during the day, not under cover of darkness. And it is this um, remarkable event that is uh, dramatized in Henri de Montelon's uh, 1953-54 play Port-Royal. And I'm going to read something about it, but uh, uh, 12, uh, the sort of keen 12 sisters were expelled because they wouldn't sign it, including Mother Agnes, Catherine Agnes, and uh, uh, Sister Angelique, and they stood by their guns. They're some of the most heroic women, and you know nobody knows about them. I mean, we know about Bernadette of Lourdes, and she's worth knowing about. She was wonderful. And we know about uh, the uh, lovely children at Our Lady of Fatima. We know about Joan of Arc, even, although that's a distressing story. But really, there's been a long-term uh, kind of conspiracy of silence when it comes to the Jansenist sisters, especially the Arnaud sisters, who were unbelievably 
awesomely dedicated. And uh, uh, Sister uh, Mother Catherine and Angelique, I believe, never, ever signed. What happened is that uh, they were expelled in one afternoon, uh, and they were all um, taken to conformist, Jesuit-friendly convents. There were several in Paris where they were sort of sat without bread and, you know, with bread and water in solitary confinement, hammered once a day by sort of your Soviet apparatchik uh, Jesuit who would come and just hammer them. And here they could barely see. They had no sanitation. It was filthy. They were all alone. They had no priest. They were excommunicated and they couldn't take the Holy Communion. They were completely isolated. And even so, while a few of them signed and spent the rest of their lives regretting it and looking back with tremendous guilt over it and writing books about why they'd done it and why they'd never do it today and expunging their names, it's a very touching record of several of these women who were hammered into submission. But two or three never did and died without having a having uh, done it. Now, the handwriting was on the wall, and I'm going to read uh, from the play Port-Royal something that Sister Angelique says <coughs> to the uh, to uh, Mother Catherine Agnes, or Mother Agnes, as she's known in the play, in which she uh, describes uh, what uh, the pickle that they're in in this August afternoon, uh, hot August night. Wasn't that a Neil Diamond? Uh, terrible live album, but it was very popular, and maybe it wasn't so bad. You know, Neil Diamond... <laughs> Um, cherry, what is that? Cherry, cherry, or um, uh, brother so and so's traveling south? I mean, I happen to like uh, solitary man, you know. Um, but um, back to hot August night, but actually August midday. Um, Sister Angelique says to Mother Agnes the following: If it should happen that the two greatest forces in this world, the ecclesiastic power which has come from the highest, and the secular power which has come from the highest, should close in like pincers and crush this poor house of ours, if that conspiracy of all hell, of all the demons of the midday hour, some in the priestly tunicle, others in the kingly mantle, should succeed in ruining this house where the only aim has been to find once more the faith, earnestness, and fervor of early Christianity." Ought not heaven and earth to rise up and cry out that that is terrible? But no, not a leaf will stir. In fact, that is what happened. Not a leaf stirred. Power, when it is in the hands of the state and when it is blessed by whatever the sort of intellectual slash spiritual slash ideological organs of a society are, and this does not have to, this is not a Christian phenomenon, although it occurred here in a, in a Christian society, and the Church of Rome in many ways is to blame, that is to say the Jesuits coupled with these, uh, the, 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 at that time, uh, coupled with uh, Louis' uh, bloody-mindedness and coupled with, to some extent, as always, the very conservative, but also very liberal. Uh, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, Jansenist figures there, they were hot to respond. They could never let anything go. You know, I've seen this in theological struggle all my life. The people who are the minority, who in my experience have usually been on the right, uh, ought to just be quiet sometimes and just meekly, you know, Jesus said to John the Baptist, let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. Let's not fight this thing. Let's just be quiet today and let, and watch. Watch 
watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. But these people, including Pascal, although Pascal was sort of used, let me get back to that in a minute. Uh, These people never let, if they had a jab from the Jesuits, they responded with a pamphlet. If they had a vote at the Sorbonne, they responded with a book and another speech. They never let anything go. They kept it alive. So although they're not at all to blame, they are the innocent party. And when you go to to, uh, uh, La Musée des Granges, Les Petites Écoles de Port at the village of Magny les Samos and see it as centuries of uh, people have seen it. It is almost like going to see a place where the early Christians were martyred in Tunisia, which I did a year ago, uh, where uh, one of the first Christian, St. Felicity, I think her name was, uh, was uh, uh, St. Felicitas uh, was uh, murdered, killed, uh, in a martyrdom. You, you, can, you, you see it when you see that quiet, um, uh, it's only open on Saturdays and Sundays, by the way. The museum's open all week, but the beautiful little kind of garden, which I think is owned possibly privately, but it is open to see it uh, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, this uh, beautiful um, pond in the shape of a cross, a kind of memorial pond, but without any markings, no monument. Uh, that's just all it is. And with the old barns, which survived the 17. Uh, uh, 11 destruction of the walls and the entire building. The barns were left because they were used for another purpose where the school had been. But the actual monastery or convent was completely brick by brick uh, dismantled. And there it is. Um, they are much, much, much more sinned against than sinning. And yet still there were times when they should have been quiet. Now back to Pascal. Pascal was to some extent a... Um, he was a little bit of a pawn. He was converted in an overwhelming way, and this conversion was uh, profoundly uh, fueled by his sister's great piety and humility, his own natural Christianity, because he had a kind of uh, he had a kind of um, deep vulnerability based on his repeated and chronic illnesses. He was a, not a hypochondriac. He was very a weakened person. I'm sure he had a very bad wet nurse, or something had gone very wrong in his early months on this uh, in this on this planet. Uh, but he was very. Uh, oh, he died young, and he was always. Uh, uh, very sick, and uh, uh, so he was a natural for this message. As a matter of fact, Sainte Beuve said that uh, Pascal était du calvaire. He was actually from Calvary. Sainte Beuve said with tremendous penetration. Pascal was sort of from Calvary. He was almost a pure Christian, kind of a Christ figure. Um, one of the greatest stories from uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, that I uh, know to be true, was that in Jack Kerouac's closing days before he died in 1969 down here, he was he was drunk 24-7, and every night he would go to these bars in St. Petersburg, and I think one of them actually still may be in existence, but I'm not sure, dying to go. And he would get really, really drunk, and his idea of a good time in his, uh, this was right before he died of that terrible liver hemorrhage at the end, um, he, he would, he would, he had a, he had a huge belly because of his Brinking, a gigantic belly, and there was a hernia. His belly button had a hernia. He was really horrible. looked looked awful. He had to kind of keep a band-aid over it to prevent it from getting just beyond unsightly. And his idea of fun was to uh, sort of take his shirt off and and do um, run against somebody else with a huge naked belly, a guy, and they'd go boom, 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 boom. <laughs> 
let's do it again. Boom, 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 boom. Like two, you know, balloons, uh, hardened balloons, um, shattering off each other and rolling back. But during that uh, insane drunken period of his final phase of alcoholism, um, uh, Kerouac, all he could talk about in addition at home to listening to Handel's Messiah and the B minor Mass and the St. Matthew Passion, which Ginsburg on his last visit said was all Kerouac seemed to want to do, was listen to those very sacred, beautiful works of art. Uh, but he, he, while he was having these sort of uh, belly-busting competitions, he would talk about Pascal. Kerouac, all Kerouac wanted to do was talk about Pascal. He regarded Pascal as the absolute, everything that he wished he could have been, Blaise Pascal was. Well, um, uh, Pascal uh, knew all this was happening, but then he died. And uh, uh, Pascal died very suddenly. He, there's always been the um, thought that he was denied the Holy Sacrament. He, 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 he wasn't. He asked, uh, and never with tremendous passion, and no one believed he was ill. He was very close to death. And he asked for the viaticum, what is called the last rites. And the priest did come, and he gave him the viaticum. And Pascal died very much in the bosom of faith. Uh, but um, after that, he was... Um, he wanted to be buried with a very humble Christian sort of tutor he'd had at uh, Port-Royal named Monsieur Hamon. And uh, he wanted to be buried, I think, foot to foot with Monsieur Hamon, and he was. But uh, then, with Racine, and then when word got out that uh, in, uh, oh, wasn't it in... Um, Again, in, I think it was in 1711, uh, when they went out to Magny les Amos under the uh, governor of Paris and the uh, marshal and uh, at the direct orders of Louis, all the Jansenist tombs were desecrated. All the remains were taken out of the tombs, uh, put in wheelbarrows and shoveled into a common pit and unconsecrated ground not too far from the churchyard of Magny les Amos. A horrible thing. Um, fortunately, uh, Racine's son, I believe, uh, found out about it and rescued his father's remains under cover of darkness and somebody else rescued Pascal's and they were both then taken I, I don't the details are, I, I may have that possibly wrong about Pascal but I know it's not wrong about Racine they are now in the church of Saint-Étienne du Mont uh, that a beautiful renaissance church with that uh, that uh, screen uh, that uh, rude screen but it's renaissance style rude screen with a marble rude screen with an incredible staircase between the um, uh, choir and the nave of the church one of the great monuments of Renaissance architecture in Paris, but in any event, Pascal's ashes are there, or bones slash ashes are there, uh, almost next door to Racine's, and that is a very interesting fact. But they're there, uh, but under sufferance, at least at the time. Now, the Duchesse de Longueville died in 1679, and she was tireless in her female protecting. I say female because she, I think she used what used to be called feminine wiles in the court of Louis to protect uh, her uh, her her uh, spiritual teachers whom she regarded so highly as a matter of fact when Antoine Arnaud Le Grand Arnaud fled and had to to leave and get out of Dodge very quickly and flee uh, to um you know up to Brussels uh, with a few other I think it was uh, yes it was uh, he fled uh, I don't remember when, but it was somewhere in there. Uh, she uh, hid him as a servant in her house, and she actually had him waiting on table in her house so no one would know that it was this very refined and really lower aristocracy guy of such brilliance, and people thought he was so fine, and he, in fact, was so fine. The picture of the Grand Arnaud, the famous painting of it that you can see, just look it up, Antoine Arnaud, the picture shows him in his absolute high point of sanctified, middle-aged 
authority and humility and compassion, and he became a uh, he became a uh, waiter on table. It's a little like that scene uh, in the Rossellini film uh, Era de Notte. What is it? One one Escape from Rome. It's called. There was one. It happened one night, or Escape from Rome, when the uh, the uh, English character played by Leo Gann is a is an escaping RAF flyer, an escape prisoner, and uh, he um, he's uh, um, just about to be caught by the Nazis by the Germans, and so his friendly Catholic uh, Italian nobility who he sort of gets in with um, who, who are part of actually the papal court disguise him as a waiter on table and he ends up waiting uh, taking the drink order of the uh, the leading um, um, German commander of the garrison wherever it is it's in Rome and it's a funny but telling story and the same thing happened to Arnaud before he fled. Now at this time um, once she died there was no way forward. Uh, Pasquet Canel who was a bit of a controversialist, he was a little bit of, of a, he, he, he sort of answered fire with fire but he was a brilliant consecrated Jansenist. He fled to Brussels in 85 and I don't mean 1985 and Arnaud died in 94 and um, Canel, Pasquet Canel uh, uh, was almost arrested again and he got out and finally in uh, 1711, Louis said, enough's enough. Uh, all the um, last uh, sisters having been deported and taken to Jesuit-friendly conformist uh, uh, monasteries, and most of the men, you know, having died, the leaders uh, were silenced or in exile. He destroyed the monastery in 1711. And in 1713, they sort of put the, the nail in the coffin, as it were, when um, Clement XI, the Pope, uh, um, uh, put out a, uh, a papal constitution, we would almost call it a bull, but it wasn't quite that, uh, called Unigenitus. Maybe it was. I think it was a bull. Anyway, Unigenitus condemned the Augustinian theology of Canel's last book, which was all summed up the Jansenist movement. And at that moment, 1711, Roman Catholic doctrine officially shifted from an officially Augustinian position on grace and the will to a free will position, a non-Augustinian position. And at this point, uh, you may say, well, that's duh, that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious in 1711. It was a profound shift from the, at least the putative idea that we cannot save ourselves at all to the idea that we can with a little bit of help from the church I get by with a little help from my friends I can save myself I can't completely do it and I can't do it alone but I bring something to the table whereas Augustine and certainly the main Protestant reformers and certainly St. Paul would have said I bring nothing to the table uh, a church was founded called the Old Catholic Church in Holland in the uh, 1720s and um um, Louis the Fourteenth died in the meantime, and uh, we know that uh, uh, that the Jansenists uh, uh, sort of were underground for many years. You see them finally coming back, interestingly enough, at the time of the French Revolution, because there was quiet Jansenism, which, by its very anti-authoritarian, even though it was a conservative movement theologically, it was very, very liberal in style. And I want to say something about that. And the reason I know it is because if you look at Jacques David's uh, famous large painting called the tennis court oath which i think is what 1789 but it's right in there with the it's right i think it is 1789 it's right the the famous tennis court oath of the uh, assemblies the different parties that club together in the in the tennis court at the tuileries gardens uh in paris uh, against the king and uh, uh brought a broad consensus which sort of kicked off officially the french revolution as unofficially the taking of the bastille had and uh, if you look at that it's not actually a painting 
I think David never did it completely as a painting, but it's a large, what used to be called a cartoon, very, very large canvas. And in, if you, in it, if you look carefully, there is a well-known Jansenist in it. I'll show you, if you'll show me the painting, I'll show you who he is, because it was shown to me once. He was a Jansenist kind of bishop or pastor. He, he, there's also, I think, a Huguenot in there, if you look really carefully, but I know there's a Jansenist clergyman in there, and it's highly telling that David has him there, and that he was, in fact, historically, I believe, involved directly in the tennis court oath. This has all been written up in a book uh, called Laicization from Jansen to Robespierre, or something like that. It's uh, The Jansenist movement continued, and we see it in French literature. Sometimes people say that, uh, that Robert Bresson, the uh, French film director of the 50s and 40s and wonderful movies like Diary of a Country Priest. Uh, some people think that he himself was a, uh, a Jansenist. Uh, certainly the tone is Jansenist, although, uh, yes, it is. The tone of that movie is Jansenist. Now, let me finish uh, by saying a couple things. First, uh, it is most interesting uh, that this particular movement spurred creativity with all its interest in uh, uh, being... Um, uh, on the limits of human enterprise and the limits of human self-made freedom and the reliance on God and God's grace, it produced an enormous and fecund harvest of great literature. Uh, Racine did his greatest play, Athalia, and many of his greatest poems under the direct influence of Jansenism. Pascal, we've talked about him and his great Pensée and his wonderful scientific experiments about the void and the various geometric things he did and the parish uh, parish uh, uh, bus system and the abacus slash computer. These most of these were done under the direct influence of Jansenist uh, fervor. Uh, Philippe de Champagne did many of his finest canvases under the influence of Jansenism. So it didn't put people down. I believe that de la Fontaine, the teller of uh, fables, I believe the Aesop's fables de la Fontaine. I believe he came under the positive influence of Jansenism, as did earlier Perrault, the guy who did, uh, you know, um, Cinderella and the Glass Slippers. Uh, he also did, I think, maybe some early form of Little Red Riding Hood. And I know he did Donkey Skin, which was made into that wonderful movie by Jacques Demy with um, uh, um, Catherine Deneuve. <gasps> oh, Catherine Deneuve and her sister. But that's ancient history. Uh, but um, you, you have, um, and I've only named some, there are others who came under the direct influence. And instead of being dour, Puritan killjoys, these men, although they were very serious men, were full of uh, creative generative power. So somehow we cannot say, as many modern people do in an ideological way, that um, seriousness in anthropology and in a view of the world and pessimism automatically uh, dampers uh, good art. It simply is not true in the case of the Jansenists, and I've just scratched the surface with you here. And finally, uh, the last thing I want to say, this is a very sad chapter in the history of Christianity and the world. Um, the wrong side won. I mean, you could say, well, you know, they were tough-minded, pessimistic, overly cerebral sort of fanatics. That's not really true. They thought they were bringing something very fine and wonderful to the world. They would start by renewing the Roman Catholic Church to give it more reality and ultimately more optimism and less kind of duplicity and certainly less hierarchy. They were basically a group of people, women, many women and many men who in a position of great equality, a Madame de Sévigné.
Paging Thornton Wilder, Madame de Sévigné, the, who has such a role to play uh, in the book The Bridge at St. Louis Ray. Um, she uh, was very fond of the Jansenists, and she loved the provincial letters. But anyway, creativity all over the place. And secondly, the wrong side won. That's my view, obviously. Uh, if you were a Jesuit, you might not think that. Certainly, you know, you never know who's really right and who's wrong. Even today, there are all sorts of movements that, you know, it seems like a long... Uh, everybody says, oh, you're on the wrong side of history. You know, this and that politician is on the wrong side of history. You watch out, you'll be on the wrong side of history. Well, don't judge that too quickly. I mean, that may be true, uh, because you're, you're either on the right side or the wrong side of a lot of ideology, but you may, a lot of people think they're on the right side of history, who for 30 years, I mean, the Jansenists lost for 100 years, but looking back upon it now, there are very few liberal-minded French people uh, almost after it happened till the present day, who don't regard this as a huge blot, similar to the uh, massacres uh, of the Huguenots uh, earlier in the uh, 1574 uh, and later in France. There are very few right-minded, liberal, broad-minded, parasity of light intellectuals and just fair-minded people anywhere, let alone in France to this day, who don't regard uh, uh, the um, uh, horrible persecution of the Jansenist women, the sisters, as well as the men and the digging up of their grave as a total blot on the best interests of a, of a, of a fair-minded, enlightened society. So don't decide necessarily today what the right and wrong side of history is. One thing we know, that power won. It ran them over. You can't fight City Hall. They didn't have a prayer in you-know-where, and it is a sad and tragic story of systematic extirpation by an institution which gathers its momentum and its power from, the, from political considerations which others use. In many ways, the, the Pope and the Roman Church was used <clears throat> by, the, uh, by, the, um, by Louis. I mean, to bring his own, because he was so afraid of any kind of sign of, of revolt or dissension in, after the Fronde, you know, that early uh, struggle that he had almost killed him and his uh, predecessors. So he was, you know, like the War of the Roses thing. He was very sensitive. But nevertheless, it all came together, and they were rolled over and flattened to death by the powers that be. And it is an amazing story. May it never happen again. And I hope that you have found this interesting and fun and informative and uh, an élucubration uh, of interest that will make you, in a sense, hang your head in shame. And also go out there and read the provincial letters and read Saint-Above and uh, go to that remarkable site near Versailles. You have to get a taxi, then a bus is, um, or rent a car. Uh, and I recommend it so highly. I've never been as moved, never more moved, than at the cruciform pond in the Valley of the Chevreuse, where these great women and men had held out for a very powerful picture of the human predicament in light of the blessing and the enduring love of God. That's how they saw it, and I guess I see it that way too. Thanks so much, and good night.